Scientists have identified the key ways in which we humans are destroying the ecosystems on which we depend. Is there climate change? Yeah. I mean, will it change back? Probably, that's what I think. How dare you? The British Conservation Alliance was launched by students in the United Kingdom to advocate for market-based environmental reforms. You should be empowered to deal with those problems. Lebanon, Poland, Spain, the US, the UK, Austria. It's just really cool seeing all these people gather to talk about these ideas when we weren't doing this a year ago, and we're doing it now. We can begin to defend the Earth against the disaster of global warming. The Green Market Podcast. Hello, I'm Luke Warren, host of the Green Market Podcast, a show from the British Conservation Alliance in association with the Austrian Economic Centre and Cedargold that focuses on market environmentalism, ESG and impact investing, and the application of the Austrian School of Economics in tackling climate change and achieving our environmental ambitions. Climate change has come to the forefront of the minds of policymakers and business leaders. The case to take action against climate change is incredibly powerful. The debate has shifted from being one between those who believe in climate change and those who deny it, to what is best in the means of tackling it. Whilst there is an overruling majority of people who want to tackle climate change, there is no real consensus about how best to do so. Groups with the loudest voices, such as Extinction Rebellion, fail to provide the mechanisms necessary to achieve their environmental objectives, prefer to spend their time attacking capitalism. However, free market environmentalists do have realistic policy proposals, solutions that seek to harness the power and dynamism of the market economy in tackling climate change. Today's episode will focus on what free market environmentalism is and why capitalism and environmentalism are indeed compatible. Today, I am joined by Matthew Lesh, Richard Bernoulli and Holly Fretwell. Matthew Lesh is the head of research at the Adam Smith Institute and a regular contributor for print and online publications, including The Times, Telegraph and The Spectator. Before joining the ASI, Matthew was a research fellow at the Institute for Public Affairs. Holly Fretwell is a vice president of outreach and a research fellow at the Property and Environment Research Centre, where she has focused her research on public lands policy, property rights and markets. Richard Bernoulli is founder and CEO of Cedargold, which provides investment advisory services and research and consulting into ESG and sustainability. It's a pleasure to have you all here today. Before we uh, look into exactly what free market environmentalism is, I'd like to start by talking about why groups such as Extinction Rebellion point the finger at capitalism when it comes to environmental issues. So, Matthew, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think that's an, that's an excellent question. I think very much there's become this association between the environmental movement and left-wing politics, um, which I think is ironic and contradictory at times, considering uh, socialism's pretty terrible history when it comes to environmental protection and that the strong capacity of free markets to deliver the kind of prosperity that means we start to care about the environment means we can protect the environment. Um, unfortunately, I think this is kind of a matter of political philosophy to some extent, uh, because this, there's this perception in order to improve the environment, um, you can't leave people free of their own devices. You need a lot of market intervention. And I think to some extent, we will accept that when there's certain market failures, there is a justification for state intervention to protect the market. But then that completely misses out on the fact that um, the extent to which the market, by being efficient, by using resources in the best possible way, uh, by harnessing the power 
of innovation can be extremely good for the environment. That, that doesn't seem to have occurred to the environmental movement. I think something else that's happened and is a much kind of darker element of this over the last 20 or 30 years, after the fall of the Soviet Union, after the fall of traditional forms of socialism, a lot of uh, the kind of far left have chosen to attach themselves to the environmental movement and acknowledge that environmentalism is very popular and therefore brought kind of far left politics into that. Um, a clear example in my head, uh, it, from an Australian background is uh, somebody, former Senator Lee Riadden, who, who um, spent basically the 50s to the, to the 80s uh, as a shill for the Communist Party. In fact, she, she ran a magazine that was literally funded by the Soviet Union. When that went haywire, she then joined the Greens in Australia and was ultimately a senator for the Greens. And it's not necessarily inconsistent on her behalf, but does show that that kind of far left infiltration into the Green movement and into environmentalism combined with a bit of a failure, I think, on the free market side to make the kind of arguments that, that you do and the BCA does quite effectively, which is that free markets do have an environmental ability, kind of attracts people who are interested in environmental and environmentalism to the, the left of politics as well. So I think it's, it's kind of a, a failure of imagination of some extent, the environmental movement, um, a willingness of the environmental movement to get captured by the left, as well as a failure of the right or, or free market advocates to make the case effectively for environmentalism. I'd like to add to that a little bit, Luke, and that is that there's sort of this misinformation. And I think that um, when we look at capitalism and how we are actually becoming a more prosperous world, as we become more prosperous, we um, are also enhancing our environmental quality. And it's that prosperity that's enabling us to enhance our environmental quality. And when we first, you know, if we're looking at some countries that are just now developing, or we even go back into our own countries when we were developing, you know, we had a hard time uh, finding water and food and, and being able to afford our own shelter and clothing. And as a result of that, the, the environment was not something we were really focused on. And so when we think about in today's world, how are we going to actually enhance that environmental quality, we can go back and look over time and see that as we enhance our prosperity, we see at first that we might have some environmental degradation that's taking place as we become uh, more industrious and go through our industrial revolution. But then we hit what we call this turning point, And we actually start to see that we're enhancing our environmental quality much more and reducing that environmental degradation as we're getting wealthy. So I think we need to really share with others the importance of prosperity to actually enhance that environmental quality. Um, as, as an economist, we call that, that uh, environmental quality a luxury good. That is, as we become more wealthy, we actually pay for more of it, and we want more of it, and we see the benefits of it. And, and frankly, we can afford to, um, to pay for it and to enhance our environment. And that's super important as we start to think about how we might be seeing regulations take place in other countries and making it more difficult for them to come become prosperous, hence uh, slowing down that ability for them to actually enhance their environmental quality. Oh, I just wanted to mention, yeah, those are great points, uh, Matt and Holly. Uh, the, essentially, it stems from a, a lack of appreciation, I think, of the power of education and engineering and innovation, the, those three elements, uh, which effectively make diminishing resources go farther in a more efficient manner. So if you think of you know, the purpose of education and engineering and then coming up with innovative ideas, innovation in business process enhancement, that all goes together to making whatever resources there are and if they are diminishing, but to make them go farther uh, in a much more efficient manner for, for everybody to enjoy. It certainly seems that a number of the main arguments against free market environmentalism are almost based on inaccurate assumptions. 
and this kind of mainstream woke trend of blaming capitalism for any failure. I mean, you, you go to any kind of large protest over the last year and you'll see banners, um, you know, with the Soviet symbol or, you know, blaming capitalism. I remember having conversations with a number of people who would blame capitalism for climate change, but not properly understand what capitalism was. So I'd like to move on to what these traits of free markets are. Um, so one of the most notable ones is private property rights. Holly, could you explain how this relates to market environmentalism? Absolutely. When we look at our, our property rights, they really are fundamental for markets to function well. And people can think about property rights and say, well, that's just I own something. But there's some really key characteristics to property rights that I think people need to understand for markets to function well and so therefore for free market environmentalism to function well as well. And, and first of all, we have to know what we own, right? We have to be able to define what we own. We have to be able to defend that, um, that we have some form of, of governance or enforcement to, to defend our rights, both to ourselves as individuals, but also to our property and our assets. Um, and so that means we need to be able to exclude others from using our resources unless we want them to use our resources. Um, and that's really, really important for how we, um, for the incentives as to how we uh, take care of our resources and how we manage our resources. Furthermore, we need to be able to trade them or make them what I call appropriable. Um, and that is when I'm allowed to trade my resources with somebody else, then I don't only think about um, how I want to use that resource and the value of that resource to me, but then I start to also think about how you value that resource and what you might want to use that resource for. And in that way, we're able to take those resources and put them to higher valued uses. And so if environmental quality is really the, the highest valued use of our resource and, 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 and really maybe conserving something and not cutting timber, then we're going to see that through the marketplace if we allow for those trades. Um, but if we actually think that we need the, those logs to build our homes, there's a trade-off there, right? Um, but allowing for that trade helps us realize what those trade-offs are and the different benefits and values that we can gain from that. And, and finally, when we, we look at property rights, we need to be clear that we need to be liable for any damage done to anybody else. So we need to be responsible for our actions. So if I'm cutting a forest and cutting that timber, if I actually have some sedimentation that's going out and, and polluting waterways down below and destroying somebody else's water, I need to be liable for that. And if we have those components of, of property rights, then markets will function really well. And, and, and therefore, we can use that free market environmental approach. If we don't have those components, then we might have some problems, right? We might have some public goods that exist out there that um, we can't exclude others from. And then we need to think about how can we best lower the, the cost of negotiating. But what those markets do for us and what those key characteristics do for us um, is they, they allow us to negotiate with others and cooperate and make those trades versus what we hear at PERC call political environmentalism, when government comes in and says, this is what you're going to do, and we have a, a a one winner and one loser um, in that situation. But what markets do in that free market environmentalist approach, it allows us to cooperate and negotiate together to move our resources to their best and most valued uses. The, the classic story, of course, here is the, the tragedy of the commons, which is um, when you leave your resources in, in common ownership um, with, with no one taking any kind of responsibility for them, uh, the inevitability is excessive use. So the idea being that, if, let's say, I have a field of grass that's that's owned by nobody, then all the farmers are going to use because you use that grass for their cattle and they're going to excessively graze the grass. And there's no incentive for any one of those individual farmers to ensure that the grass is there for later generations um, and in order to secure the value of that property right over time. Um, and from an economic perspective, the classic solution um, to the tragedy of the commons to overuse of natural resources is, is to allocate the resource. 
um, is to actually make sure that there is ownership of that property right. Because ultimately, if you own something, you care about it and you protect it. Great example of that is actually a quintessential case study of what happened in New Zealand in terms of successfully allocating property rights in, in the fisheries industry. So, you know, before property rights were allocated, you, you would have overfishing, uh, as, as Matt just mentioned, in terms of overuse of a resource. But uh, New Zealand in 1986 introduced a, a first uh, world quota management system in which government set a limit of each stock and allocated the property rights to, to fishermen uh, through individual transferable quotas, ITQs they call them. So these could be bought and sold, leased in the same way as traditional property. Uh, and also gives the right of the owner to catch a limited quantity of fish. So this, this has worked out quite well. It's a really good example of, of the allocation of property rights. Yeah, I'm going to come back to that because that, this has been a great little discussion right here. The, uh, the idea of what we call catch shares or tradable quotas uh, really comes back to my idea of excludability. And if you can't exclude others from using that resource, then and it's a highly demanded resource, then you will have the, the tragedy of the commons that occurs. And these tradable quotas, what they've done is they have essentially created a, a property right on fish, that you now have a, the, the rights to catch a certain percent of those fish, um, and you can exclude others from catching your percent of the fish. So we've created this nice property right. Uh, we would actually call this a cap and trade approach, right? Uh, that we actually have some form of governance that has come in and said, look, we have to um, limit the amount of fish that can be caught out there in one way or another. And the way they previously did it was by shortening the season. That was not effective at all. We just kept going out and catching more and more fish in those shorter and shorter seasons. But by actually creating this property right, um, we have motivated people to, to limit their catch to that amount because they understand that in the future they can actually catch more fish, um, their percent share will stay the same, but the, the actual population of fish as it grows, the allowable catch grows. And so what we've done again here is we have this, this cap and trade program that has worked very well in many fisheries across the globe. Yeah, I mean, one of my um, favorite examples of this is the introduction of fishing quotas in Maine. The lobster population grew from 133 million in the 1990s to over 500 million by 2010 in tandem with their uh, fishing quota system. Um, but moving on to um, the innovation policies and deregulation. So um, uh, one of the larger narratives uh, employed by the left is that unshackled and unchecked corporations are really responsible for destroying their environment uh, that they operate in. Um, but regulation can obviously stifle businesses innovating or responding to market demands. So does regulation, especially with regards to innovation, have a role to play in our environmental policies? So Matthew, what are your thoughts? Look, it won't surprise you that my answer is absolutely yes, Luke. Uh, and the reason for that is because uh, innovation is what is the, the fundamental to our prosperity. So the, there's a, the great kind of myth that you can't have um, economic growth without reducing the environment, without hurting the environment and, and that's fundamentally wrong it, it actually fundamentally misunderstands economic growth um, because the way we get growth the way, the way we've achieved our prosperity um, is by using our natural resources more efficiently it's it's by getting more from less uh, so just to take one example in agriculture 
uh, we're now producing more food than we have ever before. And we're doing that using less land, using less water, less pesticides, um, less human labor, substantially less human labor, in fact, um, in order to feed uh, and, and nourish uh, more people. And we can do that because we've improved um, the techniques, improved our capacity uh, to farm um, and we've improved crops. You know, a classic example has been GMO uh, that allows you to, to engineer crops uh, to be more efficient and use less water, but you don't even need that. You can use more um, basic techniques, but if you apply them well, you, you can feed more people. And that's effectively why we've managed to get millions and billions of people out of poverty. And that's just one example, one, one tiny example of the kind of innovation that enables us to use less environmental impact uh, whilst achieving more output. Other examples are, you know, the, the Coca-Cola can having something like 40% less aluminium despite being just as strong, just as um, capable of holding that drink. And, and across a huge scale, that, that adds up to a lot of aluminium uh, because there's obviously a lot of Coke cans. So the, the capacity of, of markets and, and the incentive for a kind of capitalist, for uh, somebody, a businessman operating in the market is to try and produce their products using the least possible input and therefore having the least possible environmental impact. Um, and innovation is absolutely key to achieve that. It's, it's that huge investment in innovation um, that let's say means that Ikea can continue to, to make a bookshelf that, that costs um, the same amount over 20, 30 years. And it's using slightly less materials than it used to. Um, so having less environmental impact at the same time. So the, the examples of this are, are, are endless and that the kind of basis of our economic growth and the basis of our prosperity. Let's, we have an example here in the United States as well of a regulation that actually um, really stifled innovation in the sense that uh, under our Clean Air Act, uh, we were required, our utilities, our electric utilities were required to use a certain type of scrubber, right? A very specific type of scrubber, what we call a technology mandate. And so when all the utilities are required to use that particular scrubber, there is absolutely no incentive or, for, for innovation. There's no room for innovation because they are already told exactly what they can do and what they can use. At the same time as they were doing that, we had all sorts of different types of coal that were being put into that. And the local coal in the east, um, where these many of these scrubbers were located, was much dirtier coal than the coal uh, that we use out here in the West. But instead of requiring a certain level of, of emissions or, or allowing that innovation to meet that level of emissions, they required the scrubber. Uh, but what we've learned since then, that is, if we were actually allowed to use the Western cleaner coal in the Eastern utilities, we would have had cleaner air than the scrubber was actually providing for us. So our utilities were sp spending millions of dollars. The innovation to come up with new cleaner technologies was at a standstill. And we could have had cleaner air simply by transporting the coal that was cleaner in one area um, to this other area. Yeah, it basically looks at cutting red tape, you know, the bureaucracy and making it easier to, to set up new innovative startups uh, that where you can apply the innovation to environmentalism. So that, that's a key concept. Uh, and this can apply also even to tax reform. So you can, you can look at doing uh, capital gains tax exemptions on ecological investments to, to help spur the uh, the investment on on environmentalism so regulation tax reform all of that uh, is synergistic and of course there's uh, the unintended consequences of what as well of government regulation yes so in 2001 the government introduced a sliding scale for car tax or vehicle excise duty to make diesel cars which emits less carbon dioxide cheaper however this kind of dash to diesel 
led to an increase in nitrogen dioxide emissions, as well as other potentially dangerous particles. But going back to your point, Richard, on innovation, um, unfortunately, the EU, for example, uh, has 2000 projects in Horizon 2020. But if you look at the number of projects related to graphene batteries or PV, which are three key technologies for future clean energy, they only account for 45 projects. In comparison, those related to social account for 262 projects, whilst those concerning corporation amount to 142 projects. So I, I do believe that sometimes government intervention leads to either unintended consequences or does indeed just stifle innovation entirely. Um, but I'd like to turn on to a international perspective. Uh, so free trade has often been targeted as being diametrically opposed to the ambitions of environmentalists. Does free trade necessarily mean that there must be a compromise of environmental ambitions, whether that be reducing greenhouse gas emissions or conserving local environments? Perhaps Richard, you would like to start. Yeah, in terms of um, like clean free trade, uh, you're looking at the removal of tariffs and trade barriers as an environmentally beneficial, uh, you know, to, to the environment. Um, so you remove all of those barriers on, on goods and services, uh, and that may prove easier to achieve than conventional free trade. Um, this also rides the growing public pressure for environmental solutions. So, so it's it's quite uh, beneficial on that regard. And Matthew. I, absolutely. I think there's two levels here. First of all, we can see a direct environmental benefit um, as you're talking about in terms of clean free trade and removing uh, barriers to trade on environmental goods. Um, so, for example, not having any barriers on solar panel imports because we want them in environmental benefit. And there's something called the Agreement on Climate Change, Trade and Sustainability that, that's currently being negotiated and being, being particularly led by New Zealand and a number of other countries. Um, that also looks at things like eliminating fossil fuel subsidies and voluntary eco-labeling. But I think at another level that we can understand trade, global trade to be beneficial is the same way we understand um, local trade to be beneficial, which is the, the drive to innovation and efficiency. Uh, and the classic example here is New Zealand lamb. So you get a lot of talk uh, that you should buy local, that you should shop local, that you should um, minimize your, your carbon, so-called carbon miles. But it turns out that's actually a bit of a myth because if the, the total amount of carbon production is so much in producing the food locally, it's not actually necessarily going to be more efficient than producing it at a distance and shipping it across the world. Um, and the, the classic study uh, of New Zealand land comparing it to UK land, in fact, found that um, there was less carbon emissions per tonne of producing lamb in the UK compared to so in New Zealand compared to UK by about three or four times. So if you want to protect the environment, make sure you buy your food from as far away as possible, uh, potentially in some cases. And there've been other studies to show that um, if you want to eat strawberries uh, in the UK, you're better to get them from Spain. Um, you're better to get poultry from Brazil um, as well, because both of those products produce less carbon emissions being produced in those places and then shipped over to the UK. So ultimately it's a question of efficiency in trade and if you can produce a product better and cheaper and using less resources and using less carbon emissions then there's nothing actually wrong with it being produced at distance the other level in which i think we can think about clean free trade is the fact that in order to fight environmental challenges um, we, we need a better understanding um, and a great benefit of trade is the fact that you can benefit from people's um, research and development they do across the world you can share ideas um, 
uh, about environmental protection um, and a, a traditional benefit trade is just being able to share those ideas, uh, as well as if you just think about the financing of um, green, the green revolution of, of clean energy, you're going to need uh, global trade and, and global finance. I think there's a lot of levels on which um, trade is hugely beneficial uh, to the environmental movement that haven't really been traditionally appreciated. Yeah, and I would, I would 100% agree with all of that and, and add to it, uh, let's sort of look back at our previous question and say, well, what about that regulation? And when we have these regulations here at home, we have some unintended consequences um, that may actually force trade in a, in a more environmentally damaging way than we'd actually like to see it. Um, and that is if we're regulating what we can do here and, and we're not allowed to cut uh, certain types of timber or we're not allowed to emit certain amount, maybe that amount is actually something less than what's happening when we're importing that from somewhere else or importing that resource or that mineral from somewhere else. So we want to think about those trade-offs. We want the environmental um, or we want the, the, the trade to occur for sure because we do certainly have other countries that have a comparative advantage in the ability to produce things at a lower cost, but sometimes we're creating that lower cost through the regulations that we're putting on our own societies. So we want to think about both sides of that equation. I can add also some detail on uh, an agreement between a number of countries called the Agreement on Climate Change, Trade and Sustainability, ACCTS. Uh, this is an agreement with New Zealand, Iceland, Fiji, Costa Rica, and Norway, uh, but looking to expand. And a number of those aspects are really beneficial on environmentalism. So the, the first one is removal of tariffs on environmental goods and services. Uh, that, that's one aspect of it. And then it goes in also to establish concrete commitments to eliminate fossil fuel subsidies as a second uh, initiative. And the third uh, is to develop voluntary guidelines for equal labeling of programs and mechanisms. So the, these three uh, objectives and goals are, are really beneficial as part of this agreement. Uh, some nations have also included environmental chapters in most of their free trade agreements. So, for example, South Korea has been doing so since 2012, regardless of whether it's with a developing or developed nation as part of a wider strategy to emerge as a world leader in environmental issues. This strategy has um, been used in bilateral agreements with Vietnam, Ghana and the Solomon Islands. However, there has been some costs that have been incurred by consumers, allegedly, uh, on both sides of the agreement. So. As once again said, there are some unintended consequences, um, no matter how you know beneficial or good the ambition is. Finally, I would like to discuss how we make these messages more appealing. Younger people in particular have a very strong aversion to capitalism. But as we have discussed, there is a very compelling argument to utilize the power of capitalism in tackling climate change. So Holly, perhaps you'd like to start. Yeah, actually, you know, tackling climate change is a very difficult one for thinking about carbon emissions and trying to reduce those carbon emissions, thinking about the property rights there and, and who, who actually owns the air and who has the right to emit, um, etc. So it becomes a much more difficult one for a sort of a free market approach from, from that perspective. However, if we look at what's actually happening um, in the de developing world, at any rate in the developed world, is that, that we have firms and companies out there that are very concerned about their reputation and concerned about being known for, um, for emitting too many carbons um, and, and being pollutant, whether it's, you know, whether it's back in history and we're talking about uh, nitrous oxide or today talking about um, carbon dioxide. And as, as a result of that, they are very cognizant of trying to reduce their emissions and coming up with some, some um, you know, so, some, some net neutral emissions and, and um, not the right term, sorry, um, but 
coming up with ideas and ways that they can actually reduce their carbon footprint um, out there and then sharing that idea with people and, and, and coming up with carbon credits and other things. So there's lots of different ways that the marketplace itself is starting to provide for motivation and incentive to reduce those emissions without any regulation whatsoever. Yeah, and also the uh, idea of uh, from a, an actual uh, fund perspective, there's a lot of companies now that uh, can be evaluated upon their ESG factors, how well they're doing for the environment. And this can be extended to principles and frameworks based on market environmentalism so that uh, companies can be evaluated to that extent. How well do they measure up to meeting the the framework uh, ideals as, as an industry best practice framework. So that, that's one area. I'd also like to quote uh, Sam Hall of the Conservative Environment Network who, who stated, the left is wrong that capitalism and environmentalism are incompatible. On the contrary, the best way to tackle threats like climate change is through harnessing the innovation and efficiency of markets. From a free market environmental perspective, the best rule for government action does appear to be rather than taking direct action in all cases is rather protecting property rights and perhaps incentivizing certain behaviors such as reducing carbon emissions. Um, otherwise, it would lead to significant unintended consequences which may harm businesses and communities. I would like to thank all of you for your time today. This has been an incredibly interesting conversation. Matthew, would you like to start with your concluding remarks and where we could find out more about your work? Oh, well, thank you very much for the invitation and, and thank you for an excellent podcast hosting. Um, I think it's so important, the kind of work that BCA is doing, particularly amongst young people in the UK in terms of spreading this message that the markets are not the cause of environmental problems, but rather they are indeed the solutions. Um, I, I think for far too long, as I was saying towards the start of this podcast, um, those on the free market side have chosen to kind of ignore the environmental movement and, and just more or less hope it goes away rather than taking the issue seriously and providing meaningful solutions using the, our extremely powerful um, prosperity delivering toolkit. And then that's really going to be the challenge uh, in the years ahead, which is you're going to continue to see very strong calls for particularly action on climate change, um, as well as dealing with other environmental issues. And then what we can provide a realistic alternative uh, to that, that maintains people's quality of life whilst dealing with the, the environmental challenges we face, uh, we're gonna be able to ultimately dominate the, the, the policy space in this field. Um, so I would encourage everyone uh, to check out the, the Adam Smith website, adamsmith.org, make sure you sign up to our email list. Um, if you're interested in kind of reading more about my particular thoughts about free market environmentalism, um, I wrote a chapter for the, the book published by the BCA, um, Green Market Revolution, on the topic. I think that book's also got a bunch of other excellent uh, chapters diving into the details of this issue uh, and is well worth a read. And Holly? Yes, thank you so much for uh, inviting me to participate here. This has been great fun. Uh, just to let people know, PERC is the Property and Environment Research Center. Uh, we are a 41-year-old research institute, and we have been focused on free market environmentalism for the last 41 years. We've looked at public choice issues, political economy, um, and our real big focus is to look at research and conservation ideas uh, that focus on the private sector and enhancing environmental quality and outcomes. Uh, you can find us at 
perk.org. That's P-E-R-C dot org. We also have a chapter in the Green Market Revolution book that has recently come out. Thanks so much. And Richard. Yes, market environmentalism, we think is the best and most efficient approach to environmentalism. This is as contrasted to agenda-based or government-based environmentalism. And we feel that an education and awareness of this approach is the goal of our work at Cedar Gold and also of this podcast. Uh, the book that has been put together by BCA is a really good read, The Green Market Revolution. It's a, a book that can be downloaded from their website. And um, our firm Cedar Gold has also put together an index of businesses from around the world that help society and the environment. Uh, we can be reached at cedarportfolio.com. If you would like to learn more about the British Conservation Alliance's work, please follow us online at um, www.bca.eco or on Twitter at the handle at BCA underscore eco. Thank you very much, um, everyone, once again for your time. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Green Market. Subscribe to our channels wherever you're listening to us to make sure you see every time we post a new episode.